you're listening to The Way Home with Daniel Darling, a proud member of the Denim Audio Network. Well, hello and welcome to The Way Home Podcast. I'm so glad you joined me today. This is Dan Darling, your host, and we have a great guest in store for you today that I'm very excited about. But before we get to our guests, I want to tell you about a few things that you might be interested in. First, as you're sort of making your way toward Easter, I want to remind you that my book, The Characters of Easter, is available. And that's a great book to have for your family to read maybe a chapter a day about the various characters in the story of Easter from Peter and John to Pharisees and Sadducees and even Judas and Peter and just uh, all, all these people in that story, really to learn what they teach you about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And you can get that anywhere books are sold. You can go to my website, danieldarling.com, and find links there as well. Also, I have a brand new book coming out in May. It's called Agents of Grace. It's a book that is maybe the most personal book I've ever written. I talk about some of the um, things I've endured. I talk about forgiveness, uh, Christian unity, and really uh, why God calls us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially in a time when there's so many incentives to break our friendships based on politics or preferences or other things. I talk about the things that are worth fighting for, the things worth having conflict over and the things that we should be open-handed about what that looks like for for christians and so i hope you'll check it out it's called agents of grace it'll be available in may and i'll be looking for that you can pre-order it now at your favorite retailer lastly i want to encourage you to sign up for my newsletter one little word comes out usually once or twice a week sometimes i have updates sometimes i have a, a fresh new idea or essay or or a column just on a different topic. would love for you to sign up. You go to my website, danieldarling.com and sign up for that. Okay. Today, I'm delighted to have back on the podcast, my good friend, Sam Alberry. Sam is a pastor and author. He's from uh, the United Kingdom, but he lives now in the United States in Nashville. He's a prolific author, a great Bible teacher. And uh, he has a book that he that came out a few years ago that he's updated since. That's a really important book, I think, especially as a lot of people have questions about biblical sexual ethics. And the book is called, Is God Anti-Gay? What does it mean for a Christian to think through these issues? How do we explain the biblical, historic Christian position? How do we communicate to, that to our f- friends and neighbors? How do, we, how do we live that out in a world that really in terms of the sexual revolution thinks that you know really anything should go as long as uh, people want to do what they want to do and all those sorts of things what does that mean for a christian sam is convictional compassionate and i I think you'll really enjoy listening to this conversation with him so let's join my good friend sam albury Glad to have back on the podcast. It's been a while, though. Back on the podcast, my good friend, uh, Sam Alberry. Sam, thanks for joining me today, man. It's really good to be with you, Dan. Good to see you again. Since we were last on the podcast together, I've moved to a different place of employment. You have moved 
to Nashville. So a lot has happened since since we last spoke. Yeah, you've moved from Nashville and I've moved to Nashville. But um, yeah, those two things like ships passing in the night. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Last time we met, you were in your old offices down in downtown. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. But but anyways, glad to have you back on here and to talk about all kinds of things. You are writing and, and pastoring and doing all that all that sort of stuff, which, which is great. Wanted to talk to you about. I mean, you've written a number of books on so many great topics, so I could I could talk to you about a number of things. You you have a I think kind of a re-release of your one of your books that I think has been a little uh, one of the more popular books is uh, from Good Book Company is God Anti-Gay, really answering questions that people have about a Christian sexual ethic. Really helpful book. We'll have links to it in the show notes. Encourage folks to get this at your church, youth group, church, college ministry. It's a really helpful book. Sam writes with such compassion and conviction, biblical, theological, all that. So encourage folks to get that. So it's uh, updated and expanded. When you first started kind of speaking about this, Sam, obviously you're, you've updated and expanded it. Have the have the arguments changed? Have some of the the conversations changed on what we would consider a biblical sexual ethic? You know what Christians have believed for two thousand years. It seems like obviously believing that holding that is increasingly more seen with more hostility than maybe it was a generation ago what what's your perspective yeah so i i first started speaking on this i wrote that book 10 years ago now and mm-hmm. my theology hasn't changed the bible hasn't changed the gospel hasn't changed culture has and some of the conversations have changed and so i realized that that the book needed to have a, a fresh coat of paint and I realized that the the questions that were the big questions 10 years ago have changed. And a lot of the questions that are being asked now are are quite different. So 10 years ago, the big question was, does the Bible really say this? Now the question really is, can can a Jesus who constrains our sexual expression possibly be good? That's the Mm. big question now. Mm. So I've restructured the book. I've added material really to reflect that kind of issue. I've kept the other stuff in there. I've I've condensed some of it to make a bit more space. But yeah, just I, you know, in 2013, gay marriage wasn't a legal reality in this country or in my in my home country. So it really does feel like a lot has happened since then. And I wanted to make sure mm-hmm. the book was up to date and fit for purpose with the kinds of conversations that are taking place now. Yeah, it, it's interesting, Sam. I mean, I've heard people say. Christianity was looked at as being kind of strange where now it's almost seen as dangerous because of some of the things we believe about Christian sexuality. Would you say that's fair? I think so. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. We're, Christianity is, is seen as being bad. Mm-hmm. And I, I often say to folks, fellow Christians, pastors, people aren't going to care if what you say is true if they don't think it's good. Mm. So we've, mm. we've got to show people the goodness of the gospel, how this is the way to human flourishing, because in our in our culture, we're the bad guys increasingly. Yeah, it's interesting when I'm when I'm talking to young people, particularly Christian young people, one of the things I try to do is step back from just the issues of sexuality and just talk about the sort of entire Christian story, particularly creation, you know, and, and, and the rich way that God the Bible describes God creating humans mm. and kind of making the argument that if this is true, then the way that the creator knows what's best for our flourishing better than we do. Yeah. It seems like today you have to really share the whole 
sort of story of Christianity from creation all the way through consummation to really help people understand what we're trying to say, right? Absolutely. And I, I find the doctrine of creation, as you just said, is is a great place to go in apologetics. We could sort of assume it a generation or so ago, but with the amount of confusion and self-loathing and that kind of thing today, I, I think to lean into the fact that people really have been created by, by God, they, they're not accidents. God thought us up in the first place. And I, I think one of the one of the areas where we haven't always been strong is our, too, too much of our evangelism often assumes the Bible starts in Genesis 3. And so point mm. one is you're a sinner. Mm. Whereas actually, I, I think our, our, our gospel explanation should begin in Genesis 1 with the doctrine of creation. That then undergirds and explains everything else that, that goes on. It makes sin even more tragic because we're now image bearers who have turned away from the one who's image we're made in so i found that's really helped me particularly around conversations of identity of lgbtq type Mm -hmm. questions as well just to just to show people something of what it means to be made in god's image that there's a Mm. there's a there's a sense of worth that is independent of your self-expression independent on how of how you are received by other human beings just because you are made in god's image you are precious um, that, mm. that could be a great comfort. Yeah, and and that there's this design here that that God has, the Creator has designed our bodies. He loves our bodies and designed them to, to work in a certain way that's best for our flourishing. And if this is true, if creation is true, and if the resurrection is true, right? If you go there, then He knows what's best for us. It's interesting to me too, though, Sam. At the same time, you have this sort of deep hostility to the to the Christian sexual ethic, almost across the board, right? If you think of mm corporations pride month you think of countries schools you're really swimming upstream if you hold to what the bible teaches even if you're very winsome and very compassionate about it but at the same time it it almost seems on a parallel track you have people questioning the sexual revolution and, and and not christians but even secularists questioning it people saying you know we've had the sexual revolution for you know, since, you know, the 60s and 70s, is this really good? Is this good for women? Is this good for children? You know, maybe we need something else besides just consent as a as an ethic. And that conversation's going on in the culture as well, maybe post Me Too. So while, you know, while we're viewed as dangerous, is there not also an opportunity for us to press the gospel into those questions that people have and say, hey, there actually is a better way here that God has designed for us? I think that's exactly right. Someone shared an article with me just last week written by someone, I can't remember which outlet it was in now, but but a secular writer, not someone who's even remotely professing Christian faith. And she was basically saying she, she re- the, the vibe of it was, I regret being a slut. That was mm. the kind of language she was using. Mm. And she was talking about how, you know, at the time it was, I'm being free and I'm expressing myself. But her conclusion was, the sexual revolution has been much better for men than it has been for women. And what was for her at the time seen as empowerment and all of those kinds of things, she said is basically has left me feeling used and hollow. Mm. And there's, there's a number of, of brave voices sharing very openly, very honestly, similar kinds of concerns and hesitations. So I think you're right. There's, there's a, 
There are voices in our culture that are reflecting some aspects of what we actually believe as Christians and where we can say, is unbridled sexual freedom really the path to human flourishing? Is that, does that work well for all mm. of us? So it's a fascinating time to be around. I think, as you said, the Me Too movement has changed the dynamic significantly. We can't just pretend it's just physical, it's just biology, it's nothing more. Mm -hmm. The Me Too movement has shown us much more is at stake in this. And that much more is now beginning to play into those, those kinds of conversations. So at the very least, it gives us an opportunity to say, if you're feeling shortchanged, Actually, Christianity can account for why why you're feeling that way, because there's there's mm -hmm. meant to be something much more going on here, and if that's if that's not around, you are going to be feeling a sense of lacking. So yeah, I think it's an it's a very interesting time to be having these conversations. Yeah, I, I remember hearing uh, N.T. Wright answer a question about the sort of strangeness, out of touchness of the biblical sexual ethic today, and him say something like. Well, it always has been, you know, he was talking about how in the first century, Christianity, in terms of the way it described sexuality was almost progressive in the sense that it valued women as not, not as mere objects and, yeah. and commitment and, and covenant commitment and all those things. And so it, it does seem, seem, Sam, that as much pressure is on Christian institutions, churches to sort of bow to the sexual revolution today. It really seems important for us to hold the line, right? Very much so. That I mean, those those insights about the ancient world have been hugely significant. Kyle Harper's book from from Shame to Sin really helped me. Even as you know, doing apologetics on this stuff with with university students, just to say how how countercultural this was in the Roman world, how positive we would view that counterculturality. That's even a word. Um, and therefore, it gives us a fresh way of appreciating the ways in which it's countercultural today, that there is a mutuality, a reciprocity, a sense of agency, of consent built into the Christian sexual ethic. And that, that's, you know, I think it was Kyle Harper, it may have been somebody else who said that, that consent is a uniquely Christian insight. The, the pagan world, as, as it was in, in the ancient world, never came up with the concept of consent on its on its own sex was always about power dynamics so it's it's fa it's a fascinating conversation to have and to try to show people just the impact the christian sexual ethic had in the ancient world it's been described as the first sexual revolution and that the latter one that we we've been thinking about is has not made people happier and mm -hmm. has not been good for women and it the upshot is people are having less sex not more sex Mm, mm. That's really good. Of course, there's always conversations, I think even among evangelicals about, is this really an issue where we have to draw the line? Is this, you know, why can't this just be like an agree to disagree issue in terms of the way we think about major doctrines? Why is this a major doctrine? You know, some, some will even say, well, you don't find this in any of the major creeds, therefore, maybe it's not a major doctrine. What do you say? What do you say to folks who make that argument? Yeah, I, I totally understand it. It's a very natural argument to make. But it's not a compelling one because, because of how the Bible talks about this issue. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 6 that, along with lots of other sins as well, if, if people don't repent of, of sexual sin, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so that puts it in a different category to lots of the other things Christians might differ about. Denominational background, for example, you're a Baptist, last time I checked. I'm an Anglican, last time I checked. 
Uh, that's a difference. There's some substance to that difference. We could have some debates on it. We probably wouldn't change each other's minds. But at no point am I thinking, I'm worried about your eternal salvation because you're a Baptist. Um, right. It's not that level of disagreement. But when it comes to, to sexuality, the Bible shows us eternity is at stake. Mm -hmm. Jesus rebukes a church in, in the book of Revelation because they tolerate someone whose teaching leads his people into sexual sin. Mm. Um, he doesn't just re rebuke the person who's teaching it. He, he rebukes a church that tolerates teaching that promotes sexual sin. And when we see who Jesus is in Revelation 1, we don't want the Jesus of Revelation 1 being against us in Revelation chapter 2. Mm. And experience as well has taught me that I have yet to see anyone who's become affirming of same-sex relationships who's remained orthodox on the other central truths of the Christian faith. Maybe that person exists and I've never met them, but I've always found that when someone makes that step, it begins to undo their relationship to all the other major doctrines as well, which again is a reflection of the fact that they're the gospel is bound up with this. And I think the final point to say on that is that all throughout the Bible, the Christian understanding of marriage is, is designed to be a reflection of the gospel. It's a picture of, of God's love for us in Christ. It's, a, it's an icon of that. Mm. And so if you start messing around with your doctrine of marriage, you're going to end up messing around with your understanding of the gospel that marriage is meant to be a picture of. So it's not mm. an arbitrary or incidental part of Christian truth. God didn't toss a coin to, to determine whether marriage was going to be between a man and a woman or some other combination of something else. Uh, it is actually quite central to the storyline of the whole Bible. So it's hard to change our views on that issue without changing our views on on the whole Bible itself. Mm. That's really that's really good. I mean, one of the ways that I th part of the conversation today is people sort of maybe pit Jesus against the Bible in a sort of, you know, which is not an, a new hermeneutic. I mean, people have been doing that, you know, really for a hundred, hundred, couple hundred years or whatever, or actually, you know, throughout church history, if you really want to think about it. But it's the idea, well, Jesus didn't talk about it, so it's okay. And, you know, my response is always like, well, Jesus affirmed Moses, Moses' view of marriage, and then Paul affirms that. And I'm just like, ah, I don't think we know more than Jesus and Paul, but it seems to be that at the heart of this is not just about sexuality, but it's also about the authority of scripture. And do we believe what Jesus, what God has told, uh, said to us, right? Absolutely. Because as you say, Jesus not only endorsed the Old Testament sexual ethic, but in a sense, he intensified it because he, he made it about our internal our internal posture, our attitude, our feelings, and not just our external behavior. So Jesus didn't take the Old Testament ethic and make it easier. He, he took the Old Testament ethic and, and applied it to the heart and not just to our behavior. So it's very, very hard to say that Jesus is kind of neutral on these kinds of things. He's, he really isn't. And as you say, he affirms what Moses taught, he reaffirms marriage as being between a man and a woman. He affirms that sex outside of marriage is, is sinful. And he shows us that the only godly alternative to, to heterosexual marriage is to be single and celibate. So mm -hmm. there was a, a, a well-known British celebrity 
over recent months who, who wrote to the Archbishop of Canterbury rebuking him for the church not having done enough to accommodate same-sex marriage. And one of, one of her arguments was, you know, Jesus never spoke about this. Why are you making such a big deal? And I just wonder how much of any gospel she, she would have read before concluding Jesus had nothing to say on these things. He had so many deeply significant things to say. And it's, and it's important for us to acknowledge, and we've not always done this well, that what Jesus teaches about human sexuality is challenging not just to our, our gay friends, but to every single one of us. His teaching on adultery should convict every single one of us because, again, he's, he's showing us what goes on in our hearts. So we have to, we have to reckon with the fact that, that Jesus is the issue here. And that's, that's one of the things I try and do in this new edition is, is to show people their issue isn't with me, their issue is with Jesus. If they think Christians should affirm same-sex marriage, it's actually Jesus that they're up against, not the church, not a denomination, not the Bible, not some thing called Christianity, but, but Christ himself. It really is about, is Jesus who he claims to be, right? Um, totally. You know, if we, we, either, we either believe that or we, or we don't. And as, as I like to tell people, you know, if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then, you know, you, you, you listen to the person who rises from the dead. And, and I even think in our view of scripture, right, Sam, that... You know, if Jesus is God, then, you know, he, the, the Bible, all the Bible is our Jesus words, not the, just the red letters, right? Yeah. And so I think that kind of thinking. So let's think through, like, you know, there. Uh, how should we Christians compassionately engage on this topic, you know, with the culture, but with, you know, we're not just talking about arguments here. We're talking about people. Mm-hmm. Maybe someone listening is thinking of a friend or students thinking of a classmate, parents thinking of a, of, of a child who has come out to them who mm. identify as a LGBT. You know, how, how should how should we engage this? You know, what is the proper response of Christians? How can we be both compassionate and convictional in this way? Yeah, that's so important. And this is another thing that's changed dramatically in the last 10 years. Ten years ago, it still felt slightly more hypothetical than it feels now. Um, mm. Today, virtually everyone I meet has someone in their close orbit who would identify as LGBTQI or who would describe themselves as same-sex attracted. It feels like this issue has come much closer to home for the vast majority of people now. And so, people, as you said, when we think about this topic, people are, are seeing faces of those who are, are close to them, maybe a family member or a close colleague, or a good friend. So our beliefs on this are being worked out in the context of, of relationships. And I think for me, the most, the most important thing is that as we engage in these discussions, I always want people to know two things at the same time. I want them to know how much Jesus means to me, that he really is driving what I believe. And I want people to know how much they mean to me, that they really do matter to me, that they are precious, that I'm not insensitive to their feelings. I, I care about their their hurts and fears, their ups and downs. And I care about them enough to, to even be willing to at times disagree as well. And that's, culturally, that's a difficult thing these days. We tend to assume disagreement means rejection and affirmation means friendship. But the gospel itself shows us that's not the case. Jesus was the friend of sinners. He was the one who came for us even when we were uninterested in him. 
So I always think as a, as a believer, as I'm, as I'm chatting with non-Christian LGBT friends about these things, if they know how much they mean to me and they know how much Jesus means to me, I, I think I'm getting the balance about right. I want to be someone who embodies both grace and truth. I want people to know mm. what I believe and why I believe it. And I want people to feel really dignified in any interaction I have with them. That's really good. I mean, one of the things I think about is when we have a disagreement with somebody, we tend to reduce that person down just to that one area of disagree that one area of disagreement. It may be big. So when we see them coming through the door, when we when we think of them, all we think of them is in those that one term, right? And to me, I think, you know, people are whole people made in the image of God. And so in some ways, we don't want to do what the LGBT community actually does, where they are solely identified by their by their sexual activity. Right. And uh, how do we see people as whole people and yet disagree with them strongly and pray for them and and try to see gospel work? You see the Holy Spirit uh, regenerate them. Yeah, that's really important. And. Our model, of course, is Jesus. Um, When Jesus was dining with Levi and his tax-collecting friends, Jesus was was able to embrace people as a friend without agreeing with them, and he was able to disagree with them without rejecting them. And thank God that was the case, because otherwise we wouldn't now be friends with Jesus ourselves. But that, that I think, is where we take our own cue. We, We want to make sure that yeah we may differ with people on things that are profoundly significant to them but we never want them to question whether we love them and whether we care about them and i think that i think that's profoundly important and as you as you said i want to see my friend they 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 may make their sexuality their their core identity but i want in my interactions with them to be trying to show them that there's so much more to them than just their sexuality I'm trying to reflect in the way I relate to them and the way I behave around them. I want to reflect a, a fuller and more rounded anthropology than the one that they are presenting of themselves to me. So they may mm. say, this is my identity, but I want our friendship to be a built around the fact that they are far more than just their sexuality. Mm. Mm. What would you say? we got a few minutes left. You know, if someone's listening to this podcast... And they say, and, and they uh, experience same-sex temptation, same-sex attraction, and they want to be faithful to Christ. They want to, to follow Christ. What would you What would you say to that person? And how would you encourage them to live out their life in a faith in a way that is faithful to Jesus? Yeah, I'd want them to know they're not on their own. On on two levels, they're not on their own in facing that particular temptation. There are many others who do, and. Christ always has enough grace for us um, as we seek to follow him and to to flee from temptation. I'd also want them to know they're not on their own at a deeper level because every single believer faces some form of temptation. All of us have internal wiring that, that pulls us away from the way of Christ. And all of us every day are having to say no to self, to take up our cross and to say yes to Christ. So What they're describing is one type of what is normal for every single Christian. And I wouldn't want them to feel that there's there's any need for them to despair about that because the grace of Jesus is always 
enough for our needs. We, we, it's, it's never the case that there's more sin in me than there is grace in Jesus. There's always more grace in Jesus than there is sin in me. So however messed up we may be internally, however severe and acute some of those temptations may be, we have the Spirit within us. And so we will have the capacity by God's grace to follow Jesus and to live a life worthy of the, the calling which we've received. Mm, that's really good. Maybe share a word with parents. As as parents, you know, if a parent has a child that expresses some of those uh, same-sex attraction, or maybe has a child who has come out and has chosen that way of life, you know, what counsel can you give to a parent that is wrestling through how to deal with this? Yeah, again, I'd say to them, you're not alone either. Um, I've, I've met so many parents who have, have wrestled with this issue. Over the years, there are, there are places to go where you can take counsel and compare notes and learn from each other. I think one of the most significant things is to, is to make sure your child knows how loved they are. I think some, some kids, whether they are going down the I'm coming out and living out, you know, a, a lifestyle that is not pleasing to Christ or whether they're sharing a struggle with their parents and they're seeking to follow Jesus. In both cases, they may well fear that they, this, this could be the end of their relationship with their parents. So I think one of the most significant things is to is to provide the reassurance and the, the love and the support and the sense of, you know, whatever that child is deciding to do, I'm always going to be the parent here and they're, they're always going to be on my heart and, and, and welcome. It helps to listen to the, the child and find out exactly where they're at. If a child shares that they're struggling with their sexuality, they may actually be very clear on what the Bible says. The issue may be that they're, they're frightened about what that means or they fear being lonely. So not, not to quickly presume what the child needs to hear immediately, but to, to listen well and to think, OK, maybe they need some theological clarity. Maybe they need some reassurance. Maybe they need fellowship and for people to, to walk alongside them. If the child is, is not walking with the Lord, you need as a parent to think through how can, we, how can we best be present in their lives, commend the truth of the gospel in a way that doesn't affirm what they're doing or unnecessarily push them away. And that, that's where we, we love that God gives wisdom to those who lack it in James 1 verse 5. Last question, Sam, if a lot of pastors listening... They want to be faithful to teach what the, the scripture says about God's view of sexuality and gender. They also want to be compassionate, evangelistic, all of those things. What advice do you give for pastors? You're a pastor yourself. And how do we equip God's people to live in the culture that he's called us to and do it, you know, as First Peter says, uh, have an answer for every person, but do it with gentleness and kindness. How do we do, how do, we do that well, particularly on these issues? Yeah, I, I think it can feel daunting to be a pastor in this cultural time. Mm -hmm. But the more I interact with with friends who would say they're LGBT and not Christians, it's really reinforced to me how open so many people are to the gospel. All the, the kind of cultural hysteria makes it seem as though every gay person we'll ever meet is a, is a kind of activist and an extremist. I've just I've found when I've I've spent time with with LGBT friends they have a lot of questions about spirituality about life about meaning about purpose about fulfillment 
So I want to encourage pastors and to say, listen, our, our job is not to hold the line and defend fortress Christianity. Our job is to win people and the, the fields are ripe for harvest. And I can't think of a more exciting time to be a pastor than right now, even with all the challenges we mm. face. I think this is a, an extraordinary time to be sharing the gospel with people. So let's have confidence mm. that the gospel really is the power of God to save all who believe. I love that. And I, I believe the same thing, that God is doing something today, doing a work today. God hasn't called us to you know, 50 years ago or 50 years from now, but call us right now. But Sam Albury, thank you so much for joining me. And uh, I'm thankful for your friendship, thankful for your ministry. I think that you are a gift to the church. And I want to encourage folks to get your books. We'll have links to them. The one that we're talking about today, it's a really helpful book that you can distribute in your church or small group or campus ministry or high school or whatever it's called as god anti-gay really answers some of the deep questions people have about christian sexual ethic thanks for joining me today man thanks dan you've been a great friend for many years it's always good to see you thank you thank you for listening to this edition of the way home podcast with daniel darling for more information, you can visit danieldarling.com. If you do like this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher. We also encourage you to rate and review so others can know about the podcast. You can follow me at, at @dandarling on Twitter or go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Daniel M. Darling. Thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. Podcast.